Hello, security. Merry Christmas. Welcome to the McCoy Arcade Podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Biggs. You know, Biggs, it's hard to believe that it is already time once again for our annual McQuaid Arcade Holiday Spectacular. Why, it seems like our last one was just a couple of episodes ago. Oh, wait. <laughs> it was. It was, uh, in fact, exactly two episodes ago. It's been kind of a weird year for us here at the show, and we've only had the chance to put out a couple of episodes for you. But rest assured, we will be back in 2023 with more of our signature brand of weird takes and deep dives into our favorite stuff from the 80s and beyond. In the meantime, if it has been kind of a weird year for you as well, dear listener, then we invite you to join us as we take a trip back to a simpler, more magical time. (laughs) A time when it seemed like all Americans as a country, nay, as a people, joined together in the holiday spirit of giving and love and trampled each other for the chance to buy their kids a Cabbage Patch doll. It's it's a very 80s Christmas here at McQuaid Arcade, and our little gift to you is a chance to either reminisce along with us or discover the magic of Christmas as a kid in the 80s for yourself for the first time as we hunker down here together during this very timely first real snowstorm of the year here in the Chicago area, just a couple of days before Christmas. And... Like the old song says, it's beginning to feel a lot like it. And I think that's really what set Christmas as a kid in the 80s, apart from the Christmases of today for our kids, is the fact that it really did feel like Christmas to us back then in a way that I just don't think it does for our kids now, right? Definitely. Now, certainly, you know, the fact that we are middle-aged men, and no longer children ourselves, despite some very strong evidence to the contrary, (laughs) uh, has at least, you know, a little bit to do with it. But I think a big contributor to this is the fact that we do so much shopping online now. I think that has a lot to do with it. Because as kids, I feel like we were constantly at stores and malls, whether we we were being dragged somewhere, like grocery shopping, or at a store that, you know, we really wanted to go to. Uh, And I can't tell you, the last time my kids were in a store, because even when I need something from an actual physical store, I almost always just order it on that store's app and then just pick it up in the parking lot. We had to go to stores to see and get everything that we wanted. And when we did, you know, obviously we're talking about back then all actual stuff, physical stuff. Now, not only can you get your kids presents without leaving your house, they can get those presents without leaving the house. Like you can get your kids digital download codes to, to download PS five games. You can get them Spotify premium gift cards and that's, you know, cool and all very convenient, but it's just, it's just not the same. You know, we've talked about this in other contexts, but there's no doubt that actual reality, the physical presence, right? It has powerful implications and it's really tough to replicate this virtually, try as they might. My favorite example of this and one that I often think about is that online stores are just amazing for searching for specific targeted things, right? You need part X, Y, and Z. There is no better way than putting into a search bar and finding that exact part. 
but there's a trade-off. We have completely lost the ability to browse like we used to be able to do in a bookstore or a physical library where you could sort of serendipitously discover something adjacent or nearby or sometimes totally unrelated. Somebody shoved the book in the wrong place and you said, wait, what is this? And this is another dimension in a way of what has been lost, at least is being lost to some degree. Yeah. And I think part of that is even the stores themselves, not just the stuff you were buying. I mean, stores transformed back then all at once like all of a sudden there were these big beautiful special displays windows set up there wasn't this you know it, it happened seemingly overnight there was not this gradual almost uh insidious <laughs> <laughs> creeping in of christmas beginning in early uh, you know october even before halloween is out of the way and it was a destination it was something to do you would go to the stores to look at all the christmas stuff you know it's so true we've lost a lot of these cultural signals and these things didn't just unify us right but they they kept us in sync now we're in this much more individualized kind of an asynchronous existence and admittedly this is not all for the worse i for one love working at my own pace uh, and i'm always happy to forgo a meeting that should have been an email in the first place but you're absolutely right the previous holiday seasons were frankly inescapable from the decorations around the city to the stores as you mentioned to television to even the radio you know they'd keep mentioning things on the radio but now we don't have all of that shared media. We don't have that shared experience. We live in a time where people get upset on the internet about having heard the Super Bowl outcome, and that's been a spoiler for them, even though it was three freaking years ago. It's like, <laughs> wait a minute, talk about marching to the beat of your own drummer, right? Yeah, the on-demand nature of everything now means you can do anything whenever you want. Back when we used to go to the mall, to the you know, the big department stores downtown and look at the windows and, and all the Christmas stuff, one of the big draws was... Santa, right? Getting to see Santa, having a picture taken with the the sad mall Santa, <laughs> just being sat on by gross kids all day long. And my family my, were part of the loyal order of the Moose Lodge. Talk about something from a bygone era, right? It's like the the Raccoon Lodge and the and the loyal order of Water Buffalo from the Honeymooners and <laughs> Flintstones, and it was that kind of thing. And my dad for a time, was actually the, the head guy. He was the grand poobah, <laughs> the, the, the grand high exalted mystic ruler, <laughs> as they called him in the, in the honeymooners. And we had a Santa. I mean, it was just one of the guys from the lodge. You know, he'd dress up as Santa. And we'd all line up and sit on his lap, and he'd be like, hey, Merry Christmas, Billy. Here's a basketball. Like, it, you know, call you by the wrong name and give you a toy you don't want and shove you out the door. <laughs> That was my Santa experience every year. But I would have to say Santa peaked in the 80s, in 1983 specifically, because that was the year the traditional White House Santa was Mr. T. And there's, you know, you could see this footage on YouTube and see these pictures. I mean, is there anything more 80s than a photo of Nancy Reagan sitting on Mr. T's lap? And the whole thing, it's this bizarre time capsule. He's there with all these elderly women just talking about how, how terrified they are of him and sitting on his lap and he gives them all Mr. T dolls and keeps growling at them. It's, it's really weird and almost has to be seen or at least heard to be believed.
I mean, that's kind of surreal, right? That is uh, peak 80s Christmas right there. I think, frankly, that was the peak of American civilization. We've gone downhill from there. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, when I think about cultural zeitgeist, of course, I think about Mr. T, as, as we all do, <laughs> and, and perhaps most importantly, Mr. T cereal. Now, fun fact, Mr. T is a Chicago guy and was a bouncer at a bar across the street from where my dad was a bouncer in the 70s. My dad actually was kind of adjacent to him and knew him before he took on the moniker of Mr. T. Mr. T's cereal was so good. Like, I think like most licensed cereals back in the 80s, it was just Captain Crunch in a different shape. In this case, big uh, there were big T's. But all those cereals, since they were Captain Crunch, they, it was just, you know, a way to tear up the roof of your mouth in, in new and exciting shapes and ways. <laughs> <laughs> now, while, as we just said, you know, for the most part, you had to go to the store to check out the stuff you wanted for Christmas, there was... A big, very important exception to that, and that was the Christmas catalog. Now, these catalogs, the Sears Wish Book, the JCPenney catalog, uh, weird ones like Finger Hut and Sharper Image with all of its cool gadgets and stuff, these were all so important to us growing up at Christmas time that we devoted our first ever holiday episode to the Sears Wish Book uh, a couple years ago. Check it out if you haven't heard it. It's a lot of fun. And you can go to wishbookweb.com to see a big archive of the Sears Wish Book catalogs to sort of read along with us and we obviously you know loved looking at the toys and all the stuff we wanted but we really it was a whole experience we we looked at the whole book we flipped through the whole thing cover to cover especially the weird section at the front of the book the like gift section you know that had just weird random stuff just gadgets and other random items perfect for anybody on your list that like you don't actually know slash care enough about to know what they would actually like to get. And yet, the weird thing was, this wasn't like cheap throwaway stuff that you could get for somebody at, say, a, a office secret Santa Christmas party or something. So, yeah, I don't really know who all this stuff was for. Dads, I guess, because I feel like we all have struggled to figure out what to get our dads for Christmas. I definitely got my dad one or two items from that part of the catalog. In fact, one year I remember... I got him uh, I got him a pocket watch. <laughs> and he's like, "Wow, thanks. This is really impractical, and I'm going to just put it here <laughs> on my dresser." And there uh and there it's at for I don't know how long. Years. Well, that's a, that's a good point because one of the things that fascinates me is the life cycle of stuff, right? So growing up, it was ingrained upon me that we had to memorialize Christmas with actual gifts every year for everyone in our lives. We had to get them something teachers, bus drivers, milkmen. We actually did have one for a number of years. UPS drivers, uh, mail carriers, neighbors, and of course, every single family and friend, right? So this was this was the rite of passage. And there's no doubt there is a joy of shopping for things that seem just perfect for somebody and giving somebody a great gift. There, there's something magical about that. But, but, but sometimes you felt the despair of not finding anything even remotely perfect and settling for, well, anything, right? So, Perhaps it's not weird that that's, that's where we see these pages and pages of stuff, uh, sometimes euphemistically called for the person who has everything, meaning that it was useless dreck. So I, I feel like those were things we could, we could tap into when you didn't know what to get somebody at all. Now, what I don't understand, though, is where did all this crap end up? So year after year of tchotchkes and slippers and pipe holders and pocket watches uh, and genuine leather desk mats, right, these were all given and 
unwrapped and apparently stored away somewhere. Not to mention the piles and piles of toys that we had. But most of them are gone. Like, I don't know, they all sort of slowly disappear and I guess got thrown out year after year, although they're not entirely forgotten. The hard part for us now is we've entered this new era of near instant gratification, the immediate availability of anything on TV, anything in the history of television or movies in the palm of your hand coincides nicely with the physical concept of two-day shipping from megalithic corporations that continue to lose money overall. Apparently, Amazon reported an operating loss of $0.4 billion in North America in the third quarter. And of course, this has spoiled us in an unrecoverable way, so much so that, and I'm finally getting to my point here, thank you for bearing with me, we actively ask people nowadays not to give us stuff anymore right? This used to be the thing. And now it's like, oh, wait, actually, please don't. <laughs> what a country. We have so much stuff that it actually burdens us. And now I think we're seeing this shift towards experiences and time together and consumables, you know, uh, food and, and gifts like that. As Tyler Durden put it, the things you own end up owning you. And I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Consumable stuff, usable stuff. Food is great. You know, I know the joke is always like a fruit basket. Oh, we don't like get them a fruit basket. You know, at at nearly 48 years of age, I would be delighted to receive a fruit basket from someone for Christmas. (laughs) You eat some fruit and then it's gone. It's perfect. You know, I think the, a real testament to the power of a catalog, a Christmas catalog is the fact that they have come back for the last couple of years. We have gotten Christmas toy catalogs in the mail from Amazon, of all places, this place isn't even a real store. I mean, you look at the catalog and then pull out your phone and order the thing you just looked at in the catalog, which you could have just done on your phone. I mean, it seems kind of crazy. And maybe that's how they're losing that money that, <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, they're definitely onto something because I absolutely love looking through these catalogs and so do my kids. I'm with you. And I, I often feel that one of the most important things next to the the concept of browsability and being able to look around something, but it's the fact that when something is curated in a way on a page, that's also very different, right? So somebody actually, in, ideally someone talented, spends some time to set up the page and do the copywriting, which is really clever sometimes. And you don't get that when you're searching for an item online. So the lack of time at stores and malls, is, I think that's one big reason why the holiday season feels so different for kids today. The other reason is a lack of time spent watching TV. And I don't just mean watching, you know, having a screen in front of their face because that happens a lot now, but it's, it's a very different experience as kids. Our little eyes were just constantly bombarded with ads for toys. And that ramped up even more during the holidays with Christmas themed commercials. And, you know, most of the shows we were watching were really just glorified toy commercials anyway. So whether we were watching shows about toys that we wanted or watching the commercials for those toys that we wanted, like it was all, you know, it was just constant. And of course, we didn't just have special commercials for Christmas. We had special programs that came on every year at Christmas time. We've talked before on the show quite a bit about our kids trying to wrap their heads around the very non-on-demand nature of TV back where we grew up. And I really blew their little minds when I explained to them that there were these really, really special shows that only came on once per year. Like, unlike a regular show that, you know, if you missed an episode, you might be able to catch it in reruns. Man, this was high-stakes TV, right? If you missed (laughs) Rudolph or Frosty, that was it until you had another chance to watch it again next year. Unless, of course, you taped it, which... 
you know, we never did. We could have, but we never did. Never. Because just, just watching it wasn't the point. Watching it when it aired, that's what it was all about. It was an event. We were a generation that watched old stuff, right? Stuff that was from way before we were born. Many times just because that's what was on. Like, what are you going to do? Not watch TV? You're going to go read a book? Of course not. <laughs> You're going to watch what's on. And, you know, you, you mentioned a lack of discovery and browsability in online stores. And I, the same is certainly true for our kids and the stuff they watch. They, and we too, even as adults, now you either search out something specifically that you want to watch or you have an algorithm putting stuff in front of you saying like, hey, if you like that thing, you'll probably like this thing too. But we watched old stuff regularly that given the choice, you know, we wouldn't have watched, but that's sometimes how we discovered things. And even most of our favorite Christmas specials and movies were from, you know, back before we were born. Just to run down some of the big ones, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, an absolute classic from 1946. My dad's all-time favorite movie. We watched it year after year. He loves it. There was A Christmas Carol. There's a few different versions. I feel like the 1951, the black and white version with Alistair Sim. That's the one, like when we watched it in school, I think they put it on during Christmas time at school. We would watch that one. I watched the George C. Scott version from 1984 a lot. That was on cable. And then later, years later, when we were in high school, we got the greatest version of the story. And that is the Muppet Christmas Carol from 1992. 1965, we got Charlie Brown's Christmas special. And man, I mean, we watched it every year. Um... But I just, I mean, Snoopy was cool, but I feel like Charlie Brown was one of those things between comics and books and TV specials was just always around, always there. But we never, I mean, did we, I feel like we never really liked Charlie Brown, right? Yes, he was kind of a cultural touchstone, but kind of lost on us. So he was there uh, like like the water to a fish in the background. Yeah, just always kind of there and always just weird and, and like vaguely depressing. There was the... The Christmas special with his sad tree. And then like there was the one filthy kid who always had like flies on him and stuff. Pig pen. Ugh. <laughs> but yeah, we watched it. Uh, Rudolph then, uh, you know, was from around that time as well. The really great classic stop motion animation from Rankin Bass. There were a few of those specials. The Grinch was from 66. Frosty, the cartoon. He was uh, 69. And then in 1977, well, in America here in 1978, we got my absolute favorite Christmas special of all time, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Can I jump in to say that we were exposed to, at that point, as you beautifully showcased, something like 40 years of the best classics, the creme de la creme, right? And I think this helps explain the power and the persistence in, in our culture for these shows. This is in stark contrast to the YouTube video that dropped last week or the TikTok video that someone's watching in near real time. Like you can't get this level of time-tested beauty and classics and just magic unless you filter from 40 years. You know, you get four decades of great things. Oh, and speaking of great things, we have to, I mean, we, we would be remiss if we didn't mention, of course, perhaps the greatest Christmas special of all time, and that is the Star Wars Christmas special. Of course, we didn't see that, you know, as it happened in real time in 1978, I think it was. We were too little. I think it aired once, and then George Lucas burned all the copies of it or something. That is so, I mean, you can find it on YouTube now, maybe even on Disney+. Plus. Uh, even for Star Wars fans like us, it's hard to get through, but you should watch it at least once, because it's so bizarre. Art Carney from the honey from the honeymooners is like a space 
bartender and <laughs> B. Arthur is in it. And it's all about Chewbacca's family. Everybody's singing and Chewbacca's got, uh, you know, this gross kid named uh, I don't know, Crummy or Chubby or something. I don't know. It's very <laughs> weird. Anyway, I was saying my absolute favorite Christmas special ever is Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. It's a little obscure, at least a little more obscure than some of the other stuff we've mentioned. I've brought it up to people who, you know, around our age, and it's just not as well known as something like Rudolph or Frosty. I'm guessing because when it did first air on TV here in the U.S., it was on cable. It was on HBO. It's Jim Henson. It's Muppets. It's got all of the the magic you would expect from a Jim Henson production, including some of the very first radio-controlled Muppets and these really impressive sets, beautiful music, and a truly lovely story. Like it's a gift to the Magi kind of Christmas story about the importance of giving and what it really means. And it's just great. In the book, Jim Henson, The Works, The Art, The Magic, The Imagination, Jim Henson had this to say about then his most elaborate production that he had uh, ever put together. Emmett Otter was the first time we had gotten into those kind of elaborate sets where we had floors in the interiors and it would take, uh, and we would take a wide angle shot with the characters coming up through holes in the floor. We'd cut into the set and remove the floor and you have the characters moving through space and waste shots. That was the most elaborate production we had ever gotten into at that point. The Muppet Show was always platformed up, but in Emmett Otter, we'd go right into a scene. We'd have the whole set in three dimensions rigged so we could pop parts out and come through the openings, which was really time-consuming. And Dave Goals, I think his name is, uh, he's another big name behind the Muppets. I believe he voiced the uh, Gonzo. He reflected on the special. Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas remains one of my top three projects of all time. I love the feeling of that Emmett Otter world. We built a 50 foot, 55 foot long river that was about 10 foot wide and went all the way across the stage. And they build, they built a radio control rowboat for Emmett. It was so lovely and lyrical to see Emmett rowing his mom down the river. The idea that there was this life along the river and that it was all interconnected was a great metaphor for people. It really is a pretty amazing production. And you just watched it recently. And I remember you asked me how the heck they did that scene in the boat on the river with the Muppets. It was so wild. I'm sitting there thinking, I like pulled me out of the show. I'm like, wait, this is 1970s. How, this can't be CGI, but where? how are they doing this? They're moving down a river. It was really spectacular. In 1983, we got what would become a new Christmas cult classic in A Christmas Story, which is the story of young Ralphie and his quest to get an official red riber, red, <laughs> hold on, I'm going to try to get through this. He says it in the movie like a hundred times. Uh, he wants an official Red Rider carbine action, 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and a thing that tells time for the Christmas of 1940, only to be told a bunch of times that he'd shoot his eye out with it. Now, this movie has gone on to become like a true classic, almost like I said, a cult classic, but I think it took many years. I definitely don't remember this movie coming out in 83 when we were like seven or eight. Yeah, I feel like high school maybe or maybe just before high school that we actually became aware of it. Um, and it's funny because there's this strange second level with this movie of nostalgia. It's an 80s movie, but it's set in 1940. So even the modern films of our time were tapping into a different kind of a nostalgia when we were kids. Similarly, this makes me think about Happy Days, which still confuses me because it aired from 74 to 84, but was set in the 50s and early 60s. Stand By Me, the 1986 classic set in 1959. That one still sticks to me to this day. It did more in its 89 minutes of running time than some shows do in seven seasons. And even Grease, the 1978 film, 
based originally on a musical from 1971, but that's also set in 59. So it's no wonder we're so focused on the past. Yeah. When we did become aware of it, yeah, it was kind of confusing, right? We weren't sure. We didn't realize it was a newer movie. We thought it might actually be old. It wasn't until the early 90s that it really caught on. And that's probably when, yeah, when we became aware of it. Um, there were also sort of Christmas, Christmas adjacent movies that we loved. Movies that were great that just sort of happened to take place at Christmas time. There was Die Hard, of course, uh, that we did our last last year's Christmas special all about. The whole is it a Christmas movie debate wouldn't actually start until many years after the movie came out. There's Gremlins, Better Off Dead, Trading Places, which uh, you caught a little sound clip from at the very top of the show, Lethal Weapon, uh, a lovely little Christmas movie called Silent Night, Deadly Night, <laughs> a, yeah, a really gross movie. I somehow watched when I was, you know, seven or eight. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, one of those movies that probably made my parents regret getting cable, but... Uh, what are you watching? <laughs> yeah. It's a Christmas movie. <laughs> what? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Of course, all of our favorite regular TV shows had to have a Christmas episode, partially because shows back then all had, you know, 237 episodes per season, and they had to fill all that time <laughs> somehow. Everything that from MASH to Wonder Years... Cheers. Every show had a Christmas episode. There was the Christmas Carol-esque episode of Family Ties when Alex Keaton gets visited by the ghosts of Christmas past and future. Pee-wee's Playhouse had a Christmas special that actually had an amazing lineup of guests. Uh, There was Cher, Charo, Grace Jones, Little Richard, Dinah Shore, Oprah, Katie Lang, Frankie Avalon, and Annette Funicello. Wow. And, of course, the very first episode... Of The Simpsons. The first standalone episodes, uh, episode of The Simpsons was a Christmas episode yes. when it premiered back in December of 1989. That's the one where they get Santa's little helper, the Greyhound, right? I remember this episode came out. We like kept quoting it to each other at school. Bart gets a tattoo and the tattoo guy's like, how old are you? And he's like, 18, sir. And the guy's like, get in the chair. <laughs> yes. we, were, <laughs> we just kept saying that to each other. It's cool. And then Marge has to spend all of their Christmas shopping money to get Bart's tattoo removed. And then Homer bets on the dog race and loses and his losing dog was Santa's little helper and they bring him home. It's a great episode. And in perhaps the ultimate salute to eighties consumerism, we saw that even a commercial could be spun off into its own holiday special back then in 1987, (laughs) we saw a claymation Christmas celebration starring the California raisins who of course started off as a commercial for Raisins. I mean, it's not even a, it's a food that I'm convinced no child actually even likes. And yet they ended up being a bona fide craze back in the eighties. They were everywhere. I mean, we certainly had some of the toys, uh, including, you know, the little figurines, little hard figures that we definitely got as stocking stuffers for a Christmas or two back in the eighties. And it's amazing how these little claymation characters caught on all thanks to a commercial. Yeah. I remember so many people brought the little tiny raisin boxes in their lunch and then once they were empty you could blow in them and it would make that kind of harmonica like sound and i had several california raisin toys you know i had some of the little little figures but i also had this neat soft foam hand puppet you kind of put each finger in a hole in the back of it it was kind of a big face and you could actually change the facial expressions it was an, it was almost like a little puppet it was really neat and, and kind of sad <laughs> that that was our toys we were toys based on commercials but 
There's also been this very strange Coca-Cola Christmas connection since the 1920s. And there's even this interesting argument that the modern version of Santa Claus and how we know him now with his red and white colors, that actually may have come from the Coca-Cola logo that Coca-Cola sort of branded Santa because I, I read this, this interesting article that said, what, what is the costume of the tooth fairy? And everyone sort of shrugs. It's like, I, I don't know. You know I mean? Sometimes a tooth fairy is depicted wearing a pink thing or a blue thing or a gold thing or what, but Santa, we know, but before the twenties, when Coca-Cola branded him to be red and white, like Coke, apparently he had like a blue coat or it just, it just wasn't the same thing. And now there's a popular theory that always makes its round on the internet this time of year that Santa is based on the coloration of Amanita muscaria mushrooms. These, these mushrooms that are, you know, we think of them as potentially toxic and they can be, but they also are used as entheogens, these, these psychoactive mushrooms by in particular indigenous shamans of Siberia. Uh, and I think this, it's a very it's a thought-provoking and sort of interesting concept, but it's pretty flawed. Reading about it a little bit more, it's almost for sure not connected, you know, for sure not connected that Santa, as we see him, is connected to this, the coloration of the red and white on these mushrooms. But I think it's kind of kind of interesting, compelling. You know, Will Vinton, the guy who created the California raisins, I believe got the idea to create them after eating some of those mushrooms. <laughs> so it all comes together. Uh, the raisins, part of their popularity was the music they were always singing in the commercial and the christmas special was no exception and in it they performed a cover of the temptations version of rudolph the red-nosed reindeer The raisins were one of many of the toy crazes that we lived through back in the 80s. And I feel like, and, and let me know your thoughts on this, in the now 10 Christmases I have experienced as a parent, there has not been a hot toy that every kid wants. I mean, there's Christmas is certainly where my kids, you know, they have stuff that they want, but I feel like there just hasn't been a, a craze like that. The one big hot thing that every kid seems to want. Do you agree? I'm with you. I mean, I think about so many of the things when we were kids and even when we were older, I feel like we were we were still young enough to have the tail end of hot toys or hot things we wanted. Tamag I remember Tamagotchis. I was obsessed with Tamagotchi when you're we must have been, you know, past high school. Yeah, even stuff later in our lives, Furbies and Razor scooters were a big deal, but I feel like we haven't Yeah, since I've been a parent, we haven't had a big craze like that. And we have you know, we know what we're talking about. We have plenty of experience with these toy crazes. We were, after all, there and survived the great Cabbage Patch Kids riots of 1983, which were a it was a huge deal back then, right? We were only eight, but I remember seeing footage of this madness happening on TV. And I know Walmart Black Friday human stampedes are a regular occurrence now, like nobody bats an eye. But back then, <laughs> this was really crazy and it was all over the news. People all over the country are clamoring for Cabbage Patch Kids. It's like a fever taking hold. Potential buyers are not above elbowing, shouting, and crying so they can walk away with their coveted prize. Wherever Cabbage Patch dolls are sold, they're not sold for long. For example, in San Diego, there is no Cabbage Patch doll to be found. Just ask the many callers who are trying to locate one. 
And then the footage shows, you know, store employees talking to customers saying they don't have the dolls anymore and people screaming and, and physically accosting each other, trying to grab dolls out of each other's hands. It was bonkers. One of my mom's many claims to fame is that she stumbled into a Toys R Us several months and I don't know what time of year they actually launched but it was my mom was you know notoriously pretty crazy getting her Christmas shopping done in July you might remember that they had the the presents closet it was like done in July for some things so it may have been many months before but she stumbled in there and saw them and said oh these are so cute and she bought a bunch of them just on a whim. She's like, these would be great gifts. And then sure enough, you know, a few months later, it blew up and my mom had like a closet full of these things, you know, that she really anticipated. Man, if only eBay had been a thing back then. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We certainly had plenty of popular toys growing up, Transformers and G.I. Joe and He-Man and lots of other stuff. I don't think we ever got swept up in in a cabbage patch size craze, but there were plenty of popular toys that we wanted. In fact, I found, I'll put it on our Instagram. I found a great bunch of pictures from old Christmases where I'm you know, with some of these toys throughout the years, I have a big Godzilla in one, a Voltron, a toy from Mask, very cool stuff. And yeah, we always, there was always stuff we wanted, but for us, there was really only one Christmas that ever felt like, like life or death, right? Like a, like a Christmas story, Ralphie with his BB gun. Like if we did not get this one thing, our world was simply going to end. And that was the Christmas of 1986 when we got our Nintendo Entertainment Systems. Now, the Nintendo first released in the United States in 1985, the year before, but it didn't reach us in the Midwest until 86, and we first saw it at a demo kiosk at our local Kmart, which we, you know, found ourselves at a lot. And from the the first moment we played it, we knew everything had changed. Like, we had never wanted anything as badly as we wanted that Nintendo. We would play it a bunch, get back in line, play it again, and it was the point where we we begged our parents to take us to Kmart any time they could, just so we could play it again. We could have spent all day there. And you know what's so fascinating is that it, it wasn't just that Nintendo brought newness and a different take, but I really do think this represented one of the those important technological leaps. I think we had sort of hit the, the ceiling of the Atari. It could only do so much. It was limiting. And here we had new graphics, bigger sprites, much more complexity, and a lot more memory. So you actually had games. Well, the game I used to play constantly at Kmart was Kung Fu just walking through these corridors. I couldn't believe I couldn't believe it was happening. I'm like, how is this here? This should, feels like it should be at an arcade. Oh, it's a game we love and play to this very day. You know, the Sears Wishbook, it played a big role in our quest for a Nintendo that year. We would cut out pictures and hang it up by our beds. We would slip pictures of it into our our parents' newspapers and stuff. And of course, they knew what we wanted. But my mom, she always always messed with me. She's like, a Finn Bendo? What's that? I'm like, Mom, it's a Nintendo. And of course, she knew that. And she probably already already had bought it. And it was like sitting in the garage waiting for me. But I'm sure it was kind of a tough sell because, you know, home video games, just to give everyone a brief recap, they were, you know, by 1983... The home video game market was so flooded with garbage, terrible product. There was no quality control, no oversight into who could make a game for anything. So the market was just flooded with garbage and consumers had had enough. And the whole home video game industry in America just died. It just stopped. 
And we liked our Atari, but it was to the point where it was just sort of relegated to being just another toy. Like when we were bored, we would play with it sometimes. And But this was, we knew, we knew that this was uh, another level and that we had to have it. I mean, I will never, ever forget the Christmas morning that I got the Nintendo. It was kind of like a Christmas story. It was like, remember when, you know, Ralphie opens all of his presents and he doesn't have that BB gun. And then his dad's like, oh, you know, what's that under the tree? Well, it was kind of like that, only a little crueler. Because, you know, I went through all my presents and there was other stuff that I, I, you know, was happy to get that year. But of course, I was looking for the Nintendo and at the end of the present opening, when I didn't get it, I was trying to hide my disappointment. And my father was like, hey, what's that big box back there? And sure enough, there was a big box behind the tree. I mean, it was big. It was a really big box, but I'm like, it has to, you know, of course it has to be. So I tear into this box, I open it up and... My heart just sank because it was full of clothes. And as I'm fighting back tears, I look closer into this box and I realize, wait a minute, these are these are my clothes. Like out of my drawer. Like somebody just took my clothes and put them in this box. And then I realized, oh my God. And I started throwing my clothes everywhere. And sure enough, at the bottom of the box was the big Nintendo Entertainment System deluxe set. And it was like, it was the happiest moment of my life. And we had, you know, both of us, we're very lucky as little kids and had TVs in our room. You know, and that night I, I stayed up all night playing Kung Fu. I got a big disgusting blister on my finger and it was incredible. And I got to tell you that Christmas really changed things for us. Like Christmas was forever changed. We really just had no more interest in toys after that. We just wanted more Nintendo games. Absolutely. It really represented a coming of age. And I think what makes it so important and impactful for us is we were right at the proper age for this to happen. We were kind of graduating from toys. But on the other hand, I'm just kind of realizing this right now, I think it also explains a little bit of our sort of endless adolescence or our endless childhood because it it allowed us to continue to be excited about Christmas and new things and games and, you know, it kept that going into, well, into our 40s. Yep. Here we are. Uh, whatever we were opening, even though Christmas was was different, Christmas morning was always magical. And we always uh, played Christmas music while we opened presents, while my, my parents sat on the couch half asleep with their coffee and their cigarettes in their hands. <laughs> we had a few albums that we always played every Christmas. There was Christmas with the Chipmunks from 1968. Again, even our music was from, you know, way before we were born. And that one was iconic. You know, the the song, the hula hoop. Alvin. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Dave. We had it actually uh, on eight track tape. Oh my God. We would listen to it down in my grandparents' house. I grew up in like a, I grew up in like a duplex. We lived upstairs. My grandparents lived downstairs and we would play it on my grandfather's massive, I mean, this giant wooden uh, sarcophagus size piece of furniture <laughs> that was a combo like record player and eight track tape deck and uh, on a bar probably <laughs> in there somewhere and all sorts of stuff. We'd listen to that. Burl Ives got a lot of play at Christmas time. Uh, and he was in Rudolph. He was the, the snowman. The, yes. Yes. Yeah. The narrator in Rudolph. And there was another album we listened to all the time that I had to track down. Thanks to the magic of the internet. I was able to find it on YouTube and my sister and I have talked about this album throughout the years and laughed about it. And there was one song that was so weird. I, I was starting to think that maybe it was like a, a fever dream I had when I was a kid. It was so bizarre, but I was able to track it down. It's an album called The Little Drummer Boy. It had The Little Drummer Boy and other more, you know, well-known classic Christmas songs on there by Living Voices from 1965. And I was able to find this one song that we used to listen to. And I sent it to my sister and she couldn't believe I found it. It's called Be a Santa. Okay. And it's talking about Christmas time being like Santa. And these lyrics go... Grab your belly, 
then let go, shake like jelly to and fro. Now, that's reasonable. Santa, big jolly guy with a big belly. That makes sense. But then it says, roll and bellow in the snow like a mellow buffalo. And that's not, like, that doesn't say Santa to me. How does, does he do that? Does he, I suspect maybe those mushrooms were again involved in the writing of something. Very weird. Then in 1987, we got a new Christmas album that was very different from anything else we'd had before. You know, out was Burl Ives and in was John Cougar Mellencamp and Run DMC on the album, A Very Special Christmas from 87. It's, of course, where we got uh, Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC featured famously in Die Hard. Mm. This album was really great. It featured a lineup of the Pointer Sisters, Eurythmics, Whitney Houston, Bruce Springsteen, The Pretenders, John Cougar, Sting, Run DMC, U2, Madonna, Bob Seger, Brian Adams, Bon Jovi, Allison Moyet, uh, who I know her from the the band Yaz, and Stevie Nicks. Wow. I mean, yeah, it's an amazing lineup. It's still uh, a classic album. It's a real banger, as the kids say. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's great. And, and there were many more very special Christmas albums, uh, varying, and some might say declining quality, but this first one is still really good. And I think it, along with some of the other 80s christmas theme media that we have discussed, movies and shows, I feel like it all marked the beginning of a change for Christmas. Because this stuff, it was, it was for us, right? It was for our generation. We had, we had Christmas rap music. And it was exciting. It was exciting to get new Christmas stuff as opposed to the classic stuff that we had seen and heard so many times. And, and so much of this newer Christmas media it embraced the spirit of the music and the movies and the specials from our parents and even our grandparents' generation. Some of the stuff was so old that we were, we were watching and listening to, but it also felt new and exciting in a fun way that spoke to us. Now, was some of it arguably, maybe even most of it, more commercialized than ever, designed to make us just beg our parents for the, the action figures and video game characters we saw come to life on the screen? Yes, sure. It was the 80s, after all. But... As you can see by the, the vintage action figures and video games we both still have around in our offices and look at and play with every single day, those things are, are all still meaningful to us. They're a part of who we are, and it brings us joy to share those things during the Christmas season with our kids who can now continue our tradition of enjoying both old and new without, unlike us, having to sit through the depressing mash Christmas episode <laughs> as we did so many years ago. We hope you've enjoyed this little trip back through Christmas in the eighties with us. And even though this year was light on content, we appreciate and thank you so much for listening from us and ours here at McQuaid Arcade. We wish you all a Merry Christmas, happy holidays and a happy and healthy new year. We are in many ways, a liminal generation I recently heard a quote that we are the generation that had to teach both our parents and our children how to use a printer. That perfectly encapsulates how we are a bridge between old and new. The old generation didn't have printers growing up, and the new, with their ubiquitous screens, does not need them. We spoke the language of those before us, got references to Popeye cartoons from the 1930s, jargon from the 1950s, and concepts of the 60s and 70s, yet we were also tasked with both literal and metaphoric programming of the VCR, and making choices around computers, technology, and video games. 
ushering in a time of enormous change for both the individual and society as a whole. We now can see across the globe instantly, can FaceTime or Zoom call anyone, and can magically send tiny messages to someone's wristwatch that they can double tap to heart, things that we only dreamed about in the 80s. And while the culture has by necessity changed along with the times, it would be folly to say that the Christmas spirit has been lost. As we learned from any number of cheesy 80s Christmas movies, Christmas is in the heart. I still feel it, and dear listener, hopefully you do too. And on that note, stay limber. For more fun from the 80s and beyond, be sure to follow at McQuaid Arcade on social media and sign up for our newsletter at McQuaidArcade.com. McQuaid Arcade is a McQuaid Media Production.